Hello, I'm Marie Sneeman. Welcome to Calm, Clear and Helpful, a weekly podcast series on taking good care of yourself and others with input from wellness professionals who sincerely wish to assist and inspire. Today's topic is postpartum depression, when to get help. My guest is Lurika Fick, counseling psychologist from Johannesburg. Welcome, Lurika. Thank you so much. I'm very, very honored to be here. To our listeners, after our conversation, Lurika will give us her three best tips on mental health and then it will be fun question time. Lurika, this episode is focused on mums and everyone involved with them. You're a mum too, I know. Yes, I am. I currently have two little ones and the th- uh, third one's on the way in two weeks' time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm very glad to have caught you in time. <laughs> yeah. Where did your interest in postpartum depression start? So in 2019, when I was on my very first maternity leave, I joined a bunch of online social media mom groups like one does nowadays for tips and tricks and ideas of how to cope better with motherhood. And then I realized that we have a very big problem in South Africa for multiple reasons. The one big reason is that there's a very big shortage of mental health professionals in our country. The other big thing is that we have a lot of mothers who live in rural areas and are completely isolated and unsupported. And then the other thing is that uh, we don't realize this, but South Africa is amongst the top five countries in the world with the highest postnatal depression rates. I didn't realize. And that is a very big crisis. So what then ended up happening, um, I decided that if we don't shift the needle now, together with the huge stigma around postnatal depression, because we've, I think we've made big strides on other mental health fields, but for some reason, mothers find it almost impossible to acknowledge that we're not coping. And I realized I have two, almost three girls in this world, and if they reach this stage in 25 plus years from now, I hope that that needle had shifted and that they'll be able to be in a environment where they can say, hey, I'm not coping, things are not going well. Yes, and and life is a lot more difficult. But then I I just want to elaborate on that as well. If you read the psychoanalytic, I want to say literature, on what the mother's role is with a baby, you also ensure the mental health of the child in so many more years to come if you support the mom in her journey because the the input that a mother's own mental health has on a child's mental health is it's immeasurable so yes this is very important it's a very important topic (laughs) yeah and what you put in will go down through generations exactly exactly it's meaningful work yeah New mums are often said to get the baby blues. Could you explain what this means? Yes, so baby blues is very common and I I would suggest that new moms actually anticipate that they are going to have the baby blues. It's roughly about two weeks after the delivery of a baby and the the symptoms are a lot less severe and they usually clear up when mom realizes that, hey, I've, I've, I've got this, I can manage this. This is not an impossible task. Yes, it's tough, but I think I've got a few resources to my disposal and we can take it from there. Um, If you don't mind, I'd like to just run through the symptoms quickly with that. So um, it's some mood swings that are characterized by fluctuation in your mood, um, anxiety or fear, sadness and tears, 
and then irritability or sensitivity to small and big things, uh, feeling overwhelmed by the thought of completing basic tasks, especially you can imagine, I think the realization when a mom has a baby that they realize that I am the only person that will keep this baby alive. That responsibility is huge. Then the decreased concentration most likely caused by lack of sleep or the possible trauma associated with the birth process because a lot of mothers would tell you that it was not at all what I had expected. It's not what I had planned. It's not what I had dreamt of and hoped for for uh, years prior to having a baby. And then it's appetite problems um, such as decreased appetite or having the need to overeat and then struggling to sleep uh, which includes insomnia or oversleeping. So those are the symptoms for the baby blues. Most moms would experience some of these or if not all of them for a few weeks after delivering their baby. Why is this condition called postpartum depression? So postpartum depression is a very unique disorder in the sense that it, it, it's, it, it appears because of more things than just endorphins or neurotransmitters, because hormones play such a big role. And what very few people realize is, um, it's interesting, some mothers have postnatal or postpartum depression from the first birth of their first child. Others have an increased level of postnatal depression with every baby that they have. And most people don't know this, but postnatal depression can affect you for the rest of your life. You might that. never be able to return back to the way you were prior to that. For many reasons, many biological reasons, but other very emotional reasons. And um, I'd love to speak a bit more about this specific topic on a, on a separate occasion. But what happens to a parent is you reparent yourself while parenting a child. And that is something that we have not spoken enough about. Your child triggers things in you that suddenly triggers things in your past. And now suddenly you have to deal with trauma you didn't even know you had. That is something, it's like a, it's like a T-junction in your life. You can never go back from that. So that's why postnatal depression, it mimics so many different other things. It often gets misdiagnosed because of the defense around it. So that's why, that's why it's called postnatal depression. Fascinating. Mm -hmm. Would you say postnatal depression is fairly common? Yes, definitely. I also believe if you look at the statistics, um, research shows that between 31 to 40% of South African women experience mental health problems after the delivery of their baby. Now we need to add, just consider things like cultural nuances about how able am I to admit that I do struggle. These social nuances, we have the influence of social media, of friends posting how they climbed on a plane overseas within a week of having a baby, now you need to go and admit, hey, I'm actually, I'm suffering here, I'm not, I'm not surviving. What, what I'm saying is this, this, these statistics are not accurate. I believe that we, we're sitting with between maybe 60 and 70% of mothers that struggle with this. It's extremely high. And what's very interesting, I, I only work with adults in my practice, but when you speak to that adult and you ask them, what was it like being raised in your household? Their mothers highly likely had postnatal depression that they didn't even know about and that nobody was aware of. Mm. I mean, can you imagine in the 60s admitting that I'm not coping? Your parents survived the war. You better, you better deal with your postnatal feelings. So that's very difficult. 
And today I'm working with adults who would have had a much different life had their own mothers just had had more support. Mm. Yeah, I must say it's a it's a much bigger issue than I have thought. What causes postpartum depression? You have mentioned that it's not just the hormonal imbalance. Mm. Well, it's just uh, the entire biological experience of the mother. But the main problem, and um, this is from a very psychodynamic perspective, is fantasy versus reality. Where if you walk into baby city, there's this mother holding this baby and there's a halo above their heads. Or if you look at advertisements of, of nappies, for instance, there's this cute little toddler running around in a clean household and everybody's happy and there's this big fat <laughs> smile on everybody's faces. And unfortunately, that is the fantasy. That's the dream. That's the picture that a lot of women enter into adulthood with that I need this. I want this. Look how happy that family on the on the on the magazine cover looks. Look how happy that family looks at at the social event that we attended. And then they unfortunately develop an unrealistic expectation of what motherhood is like. Now you come home, you might struggle to breastfeed and that's an extreme loss that you face. Maybe you had serious complications during your birth and you're ill or you might stay in hospital while your baby comes home or your baby stays in hospital while you have to come home. There are thousands, if not millions of different variables that crashes that picture that we have in our minds. And what then ends up happening is the mother has to go through a very deep grieving process while and after bringing a baby home from the hospital or wherever she had her baby. And now that mother doesn't just have to cope with keeping an individual alive, but she has to go through this grieving process. And who do you share it with? Who understands that? Who's willing to admit that they went through the same thing as you? It's a bit like the Me Too movement where you say, but oh yeah, Me Too, I also struggled with postnatal depression or also with postnatal anxiety or even psychosis. That's a whole other topic that we can cover on a separate occasion. But the main thing is fantasy versus reality. Mm -hmm. So when I work with moms that are pregnant before they have the baby, I prepare them and say, prepare yourself for the absolute worst. It is not glamorous. It is not fancy. It's not, um, it's not at all what you had expected. I think life plays a cruel joke on moms. The more the picture is amalgamated, the, the worse it's going to be. Try to not have that picture in your mind and take it moment for moment, not even day by day, moment for moment as you become a mother. I think that must be the wisest advice I've ever heard <laughs> on this topic. So back to postnatal depression, what are the signs that a mum should look out for? Okay, before I even get into the symptoms, I want to raise two very important topics that if you have thoughts of harming yourself or your baby, you should have been to a doctor already. And if you have recurring thoughts of death or suicide, then you should already have consulted a professional. So before we even look at the symptoms, because what I often find is especially uh, moms or, or actually any individual, they, list, they look at the symptoms, but they look at it from the rose-tinted glasses. Like, no, I don't have this. And then an external individual might say, yeah, you might struggle with that. But if you have any of those thoughts of harming your baby or harming yourself, you get, you get to a professional immediately. As you're listening, stop the podcast and get to a professional. You can come back to the rest of the podcast later. 
So the symptoms of postnatal depression is long-lasting. It basically starts from the get-go, but often parents, unfortunately, only become aware of it much later. So they would think, oh, this is normal. We're going through an adjustment. Yes, we're struggling to keep our heads above water. We're not sleeping. But actually, the symptoms have been present from the beginning. Do you mean by that from, from the birth? Yeah, from the birth. Actually, I think if a lot of mothers are honest with themselves, they might have struggled with this prior to the birth as well, which is prenatal depression. What would often happen is if you already struggled with anxiety or depression, often psychiatrists or gynecologists will take you off of your normal dosage or off of the normal medication that you use to cope. So now you're dealing with all the hormones and being pregnant, but also not being on the medication that you used to use to cope, which is healthy. And it's good that you uh, you had that support. So um, that's that's where it gets really tricky um, is to acknowledge that you might even have battled with this prior to the birth of your baby. So yeah, it's quite an extensive list of symptoms, but I think it's good that we go through all of them. So we have depressed mood or being very moody. Um, excessive or uncontrollable crying and uh, struggling to bond with your baby. So what happens is if you read uh, theorists like Lacan or Donald Medicott, they would say that a lot of mental health is based in the gaze of the mother, the way in which she looks at and stares into the eyes of her baby. Now, secure attachment is established when a mother is able to look into her baby's eyes holding her baby, containing that baby. But in order to contain a baby, you should be able to contain yourself first. You can't be completely in disarray in your internal experience and now think that you're going to be able to soothe a child. So we, we've beat this drum and it feels like such a cliche, but it, I feel we need to say it again. You cannot look after a baby until you've looked after yourself. I always say that if you wake up one morning and you think, well, I'm not going to open these curtains today, then we have a problem. If you haven't showered in two or three days, we have to talk about that. If you haven't eaten or had a cup of tea that morning, we need to discuss that. So those are the practical day-to-day experiences of having postnatal depression. It's not the whole list of symptoms and visiting a psychiatrist. It's, was I able to get out of bed that morning? Was I able to maybe dress my child and dress myself? It's the basic stuff that we regularly misinterpret. And often, if you don't live with somebody while you have a baby, who, who will check up on you? Who will notice that you haven't taken a shower in five days? Who would notice that? So struggling to bond with your baby, I've kind of veered off of topic slightly there. So withdrawing from family and friends. So in other words, if you have a whole list of WhatsApp messages that have not been responded to, I'm not saying that you should respond to all of them, but ask yourself, why do I not feel like I have the energy to do this? Who can I not face? Why can't I face them? What is it about that person or the relationship? Or is it maybe me trying to avoid social interaction? Um, loss of appetite or completely overeating that does not benefit breastfeeding anymore, for instance. Uh, inability to sleep, which includes insomnia or wanting to sleep too much. Overwhelming fatigue or loss of energy. The decreased interest and pleasure in what you used to enjoy in the past. Intense irritability or sensitivity and anger. Now, um, this is a discussion for another day, but the basic feelings of sad, mad and scared are never the primary emotions. 
So when you as a mother struggle with severe anger, there's a lot of stuff going on underneath that anger. Anger is actually a very safe emotion. The things like worthlessness, helplessness, um, feeling like you no longer have a purpose. Those are the small jackals that hide under anger. And that's what we want to get to. If we understand those things like shame and inadequacy and hopelessness, then we understand why anger reared its head. So I also I almost want to say that if you feel angry, we're in a good place. That means that the white flag has already gone up. Now we can just look at the deeper meaning. So if you feel angry, ask yourself, do I have feelings of inferiority, helplessness, shame, inadequacy, or hopelessness? And you highly likely will find some of those if you do struggle with postnatal depression. Then the fear that you're not a good enough mother. So I just want to add here, my favorite theorist is Donald Winnicott. He was a pediatrician and a psychiatrist and a student of Freud. But what a great guy. He said that you need to play more. People need to play more. And why don't adults play more? We need to really cultivate that. But what was so beautiful here is he said, you have to be the good enough mother and not the perfect mother. Because a perfect mother raises a narcissist. We don't want that. You have to make mistakes. You have to acknowledge that life is not perfect. You have to be able to laugh at yourself. It's good. If you failed that day, sit with your baby and be like, gosh, we sucked at this process today. And that's okay. And it's normal and it's healthy. You teach your kids to make mistakes. You teach them to apologize afterwards. You teach them to be human. So if you are... If you're the perfect mother, we also have a problem. You need to then go speak to somebody. You need to be able to be the good enough mother. That's also why that's, that's kind of a topic of the discussions that I have is the good enough mother, not the perfect mother. Then feelings of hopelessness, like we've discussed. And then the last one is reduced ability to think clearly, concentrate, or make decisions. Um, restlessness or the need to have everything in order and then severe anxiety like panic attacks which I mean people can just find out what specific uh, characteristics mimic a panic attack yeah I mean if you think a bit about just that reduced ability to think clearly people make roughly 35,000 decisions a day how on earth are you supposed to do that and be a mom at the same time so cut yourself some slack You've mentioned that many mums hide their symptoms. Could you talk about that? Well, many mums hide their symptoms because they compare themselves to other mothers. And I firmly believe that you have the baby that you have to have for you. No other mother will be able to raise your child the way that you do. No other child will need what you have to provide. And the sooner you become comfortable in your own uniqueness as a mother, the sooner you'll be able to grow in that confidence and grow in that belief in yourself. And unfortunately, with social media, I mean, you know, I've seen some posts where these kids are beautifully dressed in designer wear and everything is in order. But you don't realize there's highly likely four housekeepers assisting that process or I don't know how many au pairs helping out or the mother not being able to support the child on a basic level, but everything else looks pristine. In fact, I would encourage new moms to climb off social media for a while, unless it's a page where you gain knowledge and support. Ask yourself, what am I engaging with here? Is this supporting me or am I actually doing more harm to myself? And that's really what it's all about. 
is to start growing in yourself and your own ability to understand your journey in motherhood. I work with many moms across the, the country that I see online. And I would often find when a mom lives in a rural area, it's very rarely a man that moves to a farm. It's a mother that moves to the farmer's farm. And it's often her isolated with her in-laws. Now, that's a very complex relationship in itself. Now, imagine you already feel inadequate as a mother. Now I have to raise my hand to my in-laws and say, hey, not coping. Can somebody assist me here, please? And that's where things get tricky. Yeah. If a mum or one of her loved ones suspects that she has postpartum depression, what is the next step? The next step, because now you've already acknowledged that you struggle with it, which is the first step. The next step would be is to communicate this to somebody that you trust, not somebody that you don't trust. Because we cannot now add a, an additional layer of complexity like shame and guilt to the whole uh, experience. Or you need to get to a medical professional like your GP or a psychologist as soon as possible. Because often moms will tell me, who on earth am I supposed to speak to about this? So luckily in South Africa in 2023, we have such a good understanding of this. There are so many professionals around, we're waiting to assist you online if you need to. Um, and then they could help you take it from there. How is postpartum depression diagnosed? Well, we just look at the symptoms, but often, it's interesting, often, especially if you walk into the, to the office of a psychologist, it's, it's like a flavor that comes in with the mother and it generally has to do with a lot of shame. So if the mother walks in, we would run through the symptoms, but I mean, you only need, I think, five or six of everything that I've mentioned for an extended period of time to be able to diagnose you. I've met women who've had postnatal depression for 10 years. It was completely undiagnosed because nobody asked the right questions. I want to say to you, if you're pregnant now, that's already a discussion you should be having with your loved ones. Listen, please look at these symptoms. If you see any of them, sit me down, talk to me and say, we're worried about you. It's also the responsibility of the village, of the system around that mom to assist in that process. Yeah. And once it's diagnosed, mm -hmm. how can it be treated? Oh, the, the two main methods to treat it is with uh, antidepressant or an anxiolytic and then psychotherapy. But I mean, nowadays, there's so many resources that you can read up on and understand yourself and self-growth uh, programs that you can enter into. And I'm going to say this again. The moment you've lifted the fantasy of motherhood and you've dealt with the shame and the guilt, that's when we're on the right path to better your experience. So that's maybe something just to mention is the sooner you let go of the fantasy of what it's supposed to be like and just accept it for what it is, then you're already 90% of the way there. That's encouraging. Mm. How does postnatal depression influence a mom's bond with her baby? You have talked about staring into the eyes, but mm. could you say a bit more? Yeah. So you can imagine if you're not coping just to look after yourself, there's no way that you'll be able to support the, the baby or your, or your child on that level. And um, reparenting is a, I almost want to say hashtag reparenting that we're dealing with now in 2023, where a lot of very influential professionals are lifting the lid on what this means. 
Unfortunately, nobody said parenting is easy. And yet, for some reason, everybody believes that they should become a parent. I, I commend people who say, I'm not willing to become a parent. Because that's great. It's wonderful if you're able to acknowledge that and not fit the stereotypical mold that society places on you. So if you're in a position where you can look after yourself and be honest with yourself. You are doing your child so many favors. I wish that people would know this. Be honest with yourself and just acknowledge that I'm not, I'm not coping with this. I'm not going to be the mother who's color-coded every single day. I'm not going to be the mother who cooks a, a seven colors meal every single night. Some nights, a chocolate and a squish is what keeps your child alive. And you know what? That's fine. And other nights, you, you cook an organic meal that was prepared by, you know, um, someone in the Himalayas and flown in from wherever. And that's fine. But make sure that you remain realistic. Because I almost want to say, maybe on a scale from 1 to 10, ask yourself in the morning, where are we at today? And what's also beautiful, if you uh, look at conscious parenting, um, I see it in my own life with my toddler. If I wake up and she's in a bad mood, I don't ask what's wrong with her. I ask myself, okay, on a scale from 1 to 10, where are we sitting today? And 100% of the time, it's because I'm not in a good place. Remember, kids scan the environment with a fine tooth comb. And the moment they realize their mother's not in a good position, for whatever reason, didn't sleep well, or, you know, it's that time of the month, or, you know, you've had a tough day at work the previous day, your child will pick it up and they will make sure to act in a way that makes sure that you will give them attention. And it it's always in a form of a tantrum or an instability or an irrational um, expectation from the child's perspective. And the moment you understand that as a parent, you can look, start looking after yourself. I almost want to say parenting is first and foremost the reparenting of yourself before it is looking into what's wrong with your child. And um, if you look at very influential professionals nowadays like uh, professor Gabor Mate, for instance, he's a professor in the University of British Columbia. He will say to you that things like ADHD and addiction is not an inherent problem. It is a systemic problem. A mother who's emotionally disconnected cannot expect to have a child who is emotionally connected. So in other words, if a parent disengages emotionally, what else, what other resources does that child have but to disengage and become uh, in a position where they don't concentrate or they're hyperactive or whatever? And I'm so grateful that we're busy shifting the perspective from a pathology to that of a toxic society, perhaps, because a toxic society we can fix. We need to just take responsibility for it. The moment the responsibility is taken, we can actually assist children. In countries like France, for instance, they very rarely even acknowledge ADHD as a condition. They immediately ask what's going on in the system. Why is the system in disarray? Why is it so stressed? And then the child never gets diagnosed with ADHD. Where in South Africa, if a child jumps on a trampoline too much, we suddenly assume they have ADHD. That sounds like a topic for another day. <coughs> oh, yes. I Let me just get through that thick book that he's just written. It's going to take me a few weeks <laughs> or months. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. Just, just one thing. Um, mothers tend to blame themselves for, for everything. Mm. So I just want to make it clear. If there's a systemic problem, the mum shouldn't immediately say, oh, my gosh, it's all my fault. Yes. And, you know, if you think about, uh, if we talk about intergenerational trauma, so now I'm also throwing the net quite wide, but... 
um, the method in which um, I want to say generation X and upwards were parented was a very shame-based method of raising a child. Now that that person, that individual, grows up and becomes a parent, but shame is unfortunately one of the deepest, I want to say, ingredients within their psyche. Now that person becomes a parent, and what's their default uh, method is to go to shame. I'm not good enough as a mother. I'm not good enough as a caregiver. And um, yeah, shame is really a topic that if you are seeing a therapist, take that to the therapist and say, we need to talk about my shame. It's highly likely something that you're dealing with. A quick note on what I do and why I do it. I'm a content entrepreneur creating podcasts and articles for my own platform and for various magazines and digital platforms. My weekly podcast episodes and the articles on my website focus on emotional health, parenting, love relationships and the life challenges we all face. Each episode and article features a therapist coach or other wellness professional so you can get to know them and find an expert who will resonate with you should you need one. After all, online therapy and coaching means we can connect across continents. I love the fact that my website has had visitors from 100 countries and that I've featured 90 plus experts so far. Don't forget the up-close and personal articles on my website, which offer you a peek at the person behind the expert. If you're a wellness expert who'd like to be featured on my platform, just click on services on my website and then send me an email. Now, back to my guest. Uh, something I just want to mention as well is that there are other factors that play a very big role in how inevitably postnatal depression can uh, be established. So something like unrealistic expectations that the mothers and fathers place on their baby. So this is a very controversial question, but I think it's necessary to ask, why do you want children? And if you think about this, there is not a single non-selfish reason to have a child. And if you can actually answer that question and own it and take responsibility for it, you have, you've already run a marathon before you've even become a parent. But as a person, you should have the emotional maturity to be honest with yourself about why exactly do I want a child? Because if you have a child to fulfill your own needs, you are already going to fail in that process because you're placing an unrealistic expectation on your child. And this is the controversial part of this discussion. But I think it's necessary. We really need to blow the, the, the truth out of the water here. Then there's other things like infertility, hormonal and endocrine levels that can also play a major role. Marital problems. How many people will tell you, I just had a baby to see if I can save my marriage? That is a sure sign and a sure recipe for disaster. If your marriage is not in a good place, please do not have a child in order to fix it. That It's not that child's responsibility to fix your marriage. They did not choose to be here. So take responsibility for your marriage before you have a child. Then other factors, um, like for instance, the mom being very alone or isolated, like we've mentioned. And I mean, COVID-19 just exacerbated that issue multiple times. 
then complications or illness for the mother and the baby before, during and after birth, and then adoption and the grueling adoption process. And then the last one is extreme influences such as parents, friends or in-laws giving constant opinions, being bossy or trying to control your parenting style. You I have this conversation so often where parents will tell you that they um, really struggle with social events because the parents who raised the child in the 80s tries to now tell you how to raise a child in 2022. They raised you in the 80s for the 80s. Today we're raising a child for you know the 20th century and we're trying to really support that child. I mean, life has changed completely since you were a child and your parents did the best that they could, but you now need to do the best that you can with the new uh, information to your disposal. Yes, that makes it so challenging. Yeah, exactly. How would postpartum depression influence a mum's relationship with her partner if she has one? So uh, this is very interesting. It probably depends on what type of relationship you're in and also about the partner and how willing they are to uh, read up and become part of the process. Unfortunately, like we just mentioned now, if you having a child in order to sort or to fix a marriage, then we have a problem because your your spouse or your partner highly likely didn't sign up for the agreement that you have going on in your mind. But what what often happens is people marry people for different reasons. So if you married someone because you really love that individual and you're willing to accept them for who they are, then you're in a fairly good position. But if you married someone to replace your own mother's role in your life, then we have a problem because there's going to be a threat in the house now. Because instead of your wife, for instance, looking after you, she's now going to be consumed looking after a baby. And you might have to eat Maggie Tumen and noodles some nights in order to keep yourself nourished. So that's typically what happens. We don't just ask the question from the baby. The question is actually, why are you with this individual to begin with? And I think if you can answer that truthfully, we can establish how this is going to influence you the moment a baby um, enters the household and what it means for you as well. I find so often, and oh, I, I have so much empathy for this. I know, for instance, my own husband, this is so lovely. We had a conversation about a month before my eldest was born and he looked at me and he said to me, what if she doesn't love me? And in that moment, oh my word, I realized I have a whole individual in this household who sits with his own fears and his own concerns. And is he going to be able to bond with this baby? And then I personally took the responsibility and I, I made him a big dad bag and all the things like bathing, I said, is going to be a big responsibility for you because breastfeeding is not something you can do. But I made sure that in support of his bonding with our daughter, we need to be able to get her on the bottle as well so that he can assist with that process as well. And the other big thing that often happens in a spousal or a, a partnership relationship is as the mother, you have to have the maturity to say that I'm not going to interfere in the process, obviously, unless the baby's life is in danger. But allow your partner to also form that bond in the method that they know how. You see this often where a mother uses the mother-child relationship as a form of manipulation or control 
um, away from the partner. That happens often, or as a weapon, the child becomes a weapon against the partner, which is tricky because there's obviously clear resentment there. There's other issues that is not the baby's responsibility to sort out. And it's, it's not impossible to deal with, but we need to be honest with ourselves about what that's like. Allow your partner to be part of that. I always, uh, this is a tricky part of the conversation always, but what if you pass away? What if you as the mother passes away in the next few years of your child's life? Who does that child have if they do not have a father or another mother figure to bond with? Make sure that this child has multiple primary caregivers. You will still remain the main primary caregiver, but allow other people to influence that process um, for the child's sake within means and boundaries. What advice do you have for the partner or other family members of a woman who has or might have postnatal depression? Mm -hmm. The main thing is to have an incredible amount of empathy and knowledge of what this is like. And I say empathy first and then knowledge because we need to connect with that mother as soon as possible. She's already disconnected from herself and her baby. Make sure that you help her to connect and not feel completely isolated and lonely. So the moment you enter that conversation with empathy and not with the, I'm going to say the prefrontal cortex where you say, I know what this is like and I'm, and my mother had it or whatever, move in with empathy and something in the lines of, um, you mean so incredibly much to me and I can see that you're not coping and uh, I really want to understand what you're going through and how can I assist you in this journey. And sometimes, unfortunately, there are instances where a mother needs to be admitted involuntarily, but then it's your responsibility as the partner then to consult the professional and see how can we assist this person. And this is especially prevalent in the case of postnatal psychosis because the mother is not at all in a position to make decisions for herself. But also, prior to the birth of the baby even, raise this topic, ask what are the steps I can take as your partner, as your loved one, as your parent, as your sibling, to in order to assist you? How can I assist you in this? And perhaps ask that question often. Often, yes, definitely. Pre, during and post mm -hmm. the baby's delivery, yes. Yeah, because that is something mm -hmm. we're not used to, to asking for help. So I think if one gets into the habit, it exactly. help everyone. In yes, that. exactly. What would you say to a woman who has had postpartum depression and is afraid to have another child in case it returns or, as you say, it can come back in a worse form? Yeah. Well, see, that's very difficult because I think that really depends on what that individual's needs are, why they would like to have another baby, how big their support system is but be responsible in this decision. So if that means that you need to consult a psychotherapist prior to making this decision, do that. Read up as much as you can, but please read very reputable sources. Um, Dr. Google can be very dangerous in this instance. Make sure that the articles you read are peer-reviewed and that they are published in international journals, which means that they've already been tested for their validity. Also, Consult the support system you have. Will they cope with another baby in this support system? You'll often find that a father says, I have no interest to have another baby. I cannot do this with my spouse again. Then if the mother doesn't listen to that, we sit with a divorce within a few years. And that's not, that's the last thing we want for you as an individual now. 
And if it means you need to enter into couples therapy, then you do that. Larika, where can listeners learn more about your work? So I have a website called Better Mom, which uh, was a bit stagnant over the last few months with me being pregnant and me managing my own levels of energy. So there's uh, one that people can consult. I do have a podcast called The Good Enough Mother with a few episodes. So there we raise topics like connection to yourself, connection to others, empathy, fantasy versus reality, the typical things that you won't necessarily read about in a textbook or an article. And then you can consult um, Google. There are many different social media pages that are supportive. But I'd say this again. If you look at a page, ask yourself, what triggers do you have when you read these uh, the information that's on there? And yes, I mean, I would always advocate for th- psychotherapy simply because I believe it's uh, I, maybe one of my core self-beliefs is self-awareness and self-understanding because it just helps you on a mental health level so much. But also look at what your own needs are and be real about what you need as an individual and be authentic about that. And better mum, could you spell it for us? So it's just better mum. Yeah, better mum, yes. And it's M-O-M. M-O-M, yes, better mum. And you'll see on Instagram and on Facebook, it's just all about, uh, I want to say, creating empathy for mothers and for yourself. But uh, I think a big focus will also be is the reparenting process as the mother. There are ample, ample, ample pages that focus on the uh, mental health of of children and babies. But we have not spoken enough about mental health of the mother. And that's, to me, the foundation of all of this needs to start there. Yes, certainly. Could we now have your three best tips for mental health? Ah, the three best tips for mental health. This was tough. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to isolate three, but I think there's a lot more that we can talk about. The main one is to not be so hard on yourself. Now, that has many different implications because it means that, one, you have to acknowledge that you are hard on yourself and you're being tough on yourself. And then two is to figure out how to have more grace for yourself. Then the second one is to learn real, honest self-care tips. Not just bubble baths and drinking a glass of wine. I'm talking things like journaling, doing exercise, eating healthy, making healthier decisions, setting boundaries with people in your in your life that are not good for you. Those are the tough self-care stuff. But that's the real self-care stuff that we need. And the main reason for that is to create a life you don't want to escape from. Let's, let's live a life that you want to be part of and you enjoy. And then the third one is to be honest about and acknowledge your feelings. So the only tool I use in my practice is this emotion wheel developed by Professor Gloria Wilcox. Because I believe that if you are able to be honest about your own feelings, mostly during the day, you're already in touch with yourself on such a beautiful level. And emotions are our friends, but if we ignore them, they become like completely chaotic beings that just create havoc in your life. The better you get to know your feelings, the better for you. And I see you're a big advocate of clarity. Mm. Because when I listen to you talking, it it always boils down to let's get clear on this. Yeah, let's get honest about things. Absolutely. Like, let's remove the murkiness. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Mm. Can I ask you your fun question? Yes. So the fun question is, if you could spend a day where there are no rules, no consequences, and no judgment... 
what would you do with that day? Is that my question? Well, anybody's question. What would you do with your time if there were no rules, no consequences or judgment from others? My first idea is have fun. That means it's a little bit like dancing when you think nobody's looking. I think that would be... The mind boggles. My mind boggles at this question. Be- but think about this. If, there yes. are, if there's no consequences, you can't go to jail. There's no judgment from other people. <laughs> you can go all out with this question. Yes. yes. Okay. What would you rob? Or <laughs> mm. who would you punch in the face? <laughs> mm. Mm. Or whatever. So I think each mm. listener can think mm. about that. What would you do if there were no consequences and no rules? And no judgment from anybody. No judgment. Now, that's a big one. (laughs) Now, I've got a fun question for you. Mm. It's just for fun, so you needn't be practical. Imagine, Lurika, you had to decorate your whole bedroom in one color, just one color, nothing else. Which color would you choose? Immediately, Van Gogh's blossoms came to mind. So that will have to be turquoise or pink. <laughs> yeah, that sounds. That would be it. <laughs> Thank you, Larika, for opening up a new vista for me. I mean, I've had and raised two children, and I really didn't realize what the depth of this topic is. So thank you very much. It was my pleasure and my honor to be here to talk to you about this today. To our listeners, it was good of you to join us. Please rate Calm, Care and Helpful where you download your podcasts. And if you found this episode helpful, do share it with someone you care about. If you'd like a more fulfilling relationship with your beloved, if you wish parenting could be easier, or if you're interested in upping your emotional well-being, you're welcome to visit my website, mariettesneyman.co.za, for free articles and podcast episodes. Calm, Clear and Helpful is compiled, hosted and edited by me, and the music is by Mart-Marie Sneyman. Catch you next Tuesday at 9.00.